Okay, well, welcome. We're glad you're here. We're going to finish this morning. My uh, job that I was assigned was to do the introduction to the book of Samuel. And so with this text this morning, with this calling by God of the young boy, Samuel the prophet, um, we'll we'll give you the introduction and an overall sense of what is in store for the people of God going forward. When you read these narratives, you need to be looking not just for exemplary. I think when we read the Bible, we say, okay, the Bible is is an owner's manual. You've probably heard that terrible bumper sticker theology. It's not an owner's manual. It is God's history of redeeming his people. And if you keep that in mind as you're reading, you'll know that these authors almost all the time are talking about the condition of the human race, how God intends to redeem or recall or restore them and move them forward towards a future in which he and them can dwell together in perfect harmony, something that we will never see in this life, but he has promised a world to come, and that is our Our role in this world is to spread the good news of this glorious kingdom. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're longing for that day and we are the the church, are the agents of that mission of the kingdom to the world. We are their agents. And so... uh, Let's read the text. It's all printed in your bulletin. And what I did again this week is I set up the parentheses or the punctuation marks that the author used. And you can see them there. They're offset. They're in italics. And uh, I'm going to read just a portion. We're not going to read the entire thing, but, uh, but just a portion. Now, hear God's word. Now, the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had grown dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark was. Then the Lord called Samuel, and he said, Here I am. And he ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But Eli said, I did not call. Lie down again. So he went and lay down. And the Lord called him again, Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. And he said, I did not call you, my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time, and he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go lie down, and if he calls you again, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. 
So Samuel went and lay down in his place. And the Lord came and stood, calling at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. Now jump down to verse 19. It's the ending verses. Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh. For the, word, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. This is God's word. Back in Deuteronomy, the prophet Moses had told the people that there would come a time in their history when he would raise up a prophet like himself, another prophet like Moses. And Moses said, you better listen to him. Listen to what he says. Samuel is that prophet. Samuel is the first prophet to emerge from the people of God uh, of this stature, a stature that is, if not equal to Moses, right close to being equal to Moses. Moses brought the people of God out of slavery in the Exodus and got them established in the land. And they had a series of judges, many of you that know your your biblical text, your narrative, know that the judges were serving kind of like kings, but they were just not, they just were not godly men. Very often they were terrible. Sometimes they were okay, but the cycle that you see in judges is a steady decline in leadership. And God always intended to give his people a king. He even tells them in this section of Deuteronomy about the, the God giving them a king. But he wanted to give them a king after his own heart or one that, that, uh, that was sympathetic to God and his ways. Someone whose heart was fully given over to the Lord. And we see that, of course, in King David. We see the foil or the opposite of that in King Saul. And so there's this amazing story. Authors have said there's just almost nothing. There is nothing like the book of Samuel and some of these other narratives in ancient literature, not in any, even Homer, the Iliad and the Odyssey, um, don't even come close to the style and the the way this narrative is put together. It's just really beautiful. Even though Samuel is that prophet that Moses was talking about, those of us now in the New Testament church know that those words to Samuel and to the nation of Israel anticipates the coming of the true king, the great king, King Jesus. How do we know that? Because in the New Testament, at least in five places, two explicitly in the book of Acts and three in the book of John, where Jesus is named that prophet. 
He said, this is the prophet that we were expecting to come. So the Israelites had no problem understanding that there would be a successor to Moses, which was Samuel, and that there would be a successor to Samuel. They didn't know who he was going to be, but Jesus is identified as that prophet, but he's also called a king. And then in the book of Hebrews, he's called a priest. And so the narrative, keep in the back of your mind the redemptive thread like we talked about in Sunday school this morning. There's a redemptive thread that runs through these stories. They're not history per se. They're not historiography. They're historical. But they're very selective. They're just picking up things in, in, in pieces and setting out a line of narrative in which you can trace the redemptive threads. So it's not comprehensive. It's not everything that happened in the life of Samuel. In fact, his, his whole ministry just takes up a few chapters. David's life takes up the most. There's the most narrative of any individual in the Bible is concerning King David. So think about this. They're being very selective. So this morning what I'm going to talk about, just two things, and, and I'll, hopefully I'll stay in within my bounds of time. We're going to look first at the amazing grace of God. And then secondly, we're going to look at the terrifying, chilling judgment of God. And both are present here in this text. So look at, uh, the reason I printed this for you the way I did is so you can see the punctuation marks that the author uses in offsetting each paragraph with this emphasis on Samuel. Samuel's ministering to the Lord. Samuel doesn't know the Lord yet, but the Lord is calling him. And then at the end, kind of this summary, 19, uh, verse 19 through 4.1, this summary of all of Samuel's ministry to the people of Israel. God let none of his words fall to the ground. He was a prophet extraordinaire. And Samuel set the bar for all of the prophets that followed him right up to and including our Lord Jesus. It's it's remarkable. The importance of Samuel just can't be overstated. So look at verse 1, verse 7, and this section at 19. Look at the parts that I've offset for you. Samuel's ministering to the Lord and the word of the Lord, the visions, the, the, the communication of God to his people in those days was rare. It was not extinct. It just was not very often. And when it did come, it was usually during some catastrophic moment or some moment of, oh my God, what are we going to do now? And God would graciously, amazingly come and speak very often to disobedient and hard-hearted people. And you see all these stories about prophets and lions eating the prophets and all of this stuff. I mean, it's really crazy. But if you look at it through the lens of this historical narrative, you can start to put the pieces together and see there's a theme running through this. People aren't listening. Nobody's got ears. They have ears, but they don't hear. They have eyes, but they don't see. They're like the idols that they worship. They're deaf and they're dumb and they're helpless. They have arms, but they can't save. They they are completely given over to the idolatry of this world. And idols are not little icons in churches or statues or, you know, I've told you, that's not what it is. An idol is anything 
that occupies the space or place that God should occupy alone. In other words, God is alone in His, in his place, in His presence, in His temple. And He invites us in there to be with Him. But He says to us as human beings, don't bring anything with you that you think you need in order to be in My presence. You come empty-handed, you come naked, you come flying to the flood, as the hymn says, to look for cleansing. You let Him clothe you. You, let, you bring nothing with you into His presence. You leave it all outside. So anything can become an idol. It can, it can even be good deeds. It can even be our merit, our sincerity, all the things that we love to roll out and say, this is why I deserve God in my life. And the minute you say, I deserve, you've just brought something into the room with Him, yes? There it is. Or some of us have had things taken away. I just realized the other day I was working on my old truck. I have a, a, an old pickup, 66 Ford pickup. And I'm under the pickup and I'm trying to work. And I, I, it hit me. I can't do this anymore. I can't even get up. I'm stuck to the creeper. You know those creepers? You know, I was laying there. I'm gonna, am I going to get up? Marty V's in the house. Anyway, she can't lift me. What am I going to do? I had to roll off the creeper and creep myself on the ground until I could find something. <laughs> I mean, it's horrible. Oh, man, we are so weak. We think we're strong, but we're not. Samuel grew. The Lord was with him. Look at verse 19. He didn't know the Lord, verse 7, but the Lord was after him. What do we see? What are we looking at here? We are looking at nothing less than the amazing grace of God. You see this almost on every page, as we talked about in Sunday school. Genesis chapter 3. They sinned. They did something the worst thing two people could possibly do. They brought an idol into the Garden of Eden where there was only good, and, and he told them, don't go eat this tree from the knowledge of, of good and evil. You don't need to know about evil. You just need to know about good. I've put good here for you. Take and eat from that tree. Leave the evil alone. Not that knowing about evil is bad in itself. God knows about evil. He didn't want us to know it. He wanted us to know good. And he gave us a good world. And when we look around and we ask these questions, these loaded questions, why did God make a world like, why does He let people suffer? Why do we have to look at pictures of children starving in Ethiopia? They're starving because of us. We invented an AK-47. We invented the AR-15 assault rifles. We invented that stuff. And there are places in your scripture where God said, these things didn't even come into my mind. The horror that you have committed when he was excoriating his people. He says, you've done they didn't. I didn't even have these things in my mind and you have created them. And yet the human race points their finger at God every day from every angle, whether you're Muslim or Buddhist or Christian, it doesn't matter. We're always blaming Him and rarely looking into the mirror of God's Word. These words of punctuation, these parenthetical statements that the author of Samuel puts in are for us to see that He is gracious. 
not in spite of our evil, not in spite of our sin, but because of it. He loves us, and because of our sin, He is coming in. And in theology, we call this the divine initiative, that God is always stepping in first, ahead of everything else. You do not find people out there groping around, begging for God to reveal Himself. You find the storylines in the Bible of people like Samuel, a good little boy who's been serving in the temple probably from the time he was four years, three, four years old, he's been there. His mother and dad gave him back to the priest, Eli. And and even he's not looking for the Lord. Even this precious little boy who God is going to use. God had to come. He didn't know the Lord. The divine initiative, God stepping in, and everyone in this room, everyone in this city, everyone in this planet that knows Jesus Christ, you are here because God took the initiative first. You may have said, well, you know, when I was young, I was looking for God. I wanted God in my life. That is true. We have a longing for God. But very often, when you meet the God of the Bible, you say, what? That is the God I was looking for. I was looking for something else. That's the offense that the gospel often bring. So what does it take for a person then to receive the good news of the gospel? It takes God with a divine initiative and self-revelation. In other words, you're doing nothing. You're just there. And He brings illumination on His own. This is what we call predestination. So, oh, I don't like that. Well, you should love it. You should love it that God takes the divine initiative. You should love it that He moves towards us. He does not strip us of our free will in any shape or form. That means you, if you think that, you don't understand what this divine initiative, this self-revelation is. This self-revelation would be impossible if God did not do it of His own accord. Yes? See how quiet it is? Say the word predestination and people break out in hives. And it is a troublesome doctrine because it raises more questions than it answers. But I want you just to think about this one answer that none of us would be here today if God had not done something to get us here. Can you say amen to that? Okay. Enough said. If you have questions about it, you ask Dawson. (laughs) He finds us. It's never the other way around. There's never any time where he's hiding behind a tree going, catch me, catch me if you can. And And the people are scrambling to find him. In fact, when he shows up, they often try to get away from him. And at the very least, they fall down on the ground and they can't even breathe. It's so horrifying. God stoops. uh, John Calvin said in his Institutes in chapter 1, I think it's uh, section 13, paragraph 1. How do you like that? Are you impressed? You should be, because it's written right here. 
God stoops, he condescends. Calvin used the word lisps, or he talks, uh, some theologians have translated it, he talks in baby talk. But he accommodates himself, he adapts to our need to understand by human language with human simple terms. He speaks, and if he did not speak, we would still be outside the garden in our sins, death controlling us to the very moment we died physically, and then we would perish. I don't know what would be on the other side of that except awfulness. And so God speaks. He condescends to speak out of love and care to us. And it's in our Bible where he speaks. I have people tell me all the time, well, God told me this and God told me that and God told me that. Don't come to me and tell me God told you this or God told you that. Because I have no way of verifying. That could just be because you had, you know, enchiladas late last night. I don't know if God spoke to you and you can't prove it. But give me a Bible and then what do I have? In my hand, by the grace of God, in my lostness, in my brokenness, what do I hold? The Word of God. I know that's Him speaking to me. I don't know what He does to you. I've never heard Him speak or His voice or any of that. And I'm way more spiritual than the rest of you. So when you come to me and tell me God is speaking to you, I go, no, no. If He's going to speak to anybody, it's going to be to me. Probably Dawson first, then me. But you get the picture. So... I'm not putting down any, you know, if you, if you think God is speaking to you or giving you private direction about certain things, fine. You go with that. But don't ever forget that the only certain place, the place we know He's speaking, is in His Word. Because look, the Word of God came to all Israel through the prophet Samuel. And the Word of God has come to all of us through our Savior, our God, and ultimately in Jesus, you'll see in a minute, the amazing grace of God. When Jesus is, was on earth and he's talking to people and he's telling them stuff about his, his kingdom, they refused to listen. In other words, there was the word of God incarnate, plus he's speaking the word of God. He's not only the word of God himself, but he's actually speaking and he goes, in order to describe the phenomenon that's happening, he reaches back to an, a prophetic word by the prophet Isaiah and a couple others. He reaches back and gets those words, fills his mouth with those words to describe what's happening. He says this, The hearts of these people are hardened. Their ears cannot hear. They've closed their eyes. They cannot see. Their hearts, they cannot understand. They cannot turn and let me heal them. They can't do it. Their hearts are too hard. They've got so much stuff in their ears they can't hear. They're blind. What do you think it's going to take for them to be able to hear? Say divine initiative. Say it. Come on. Say self-revelation. Say it. Self-revelation. That's what it's going to take. Dead people can't raise themselves from the dead and deaf people can't go like this and hear. 
It takes something else. It takes something outside of ourselves. And for all the mystery in these things, we should be thanking God and praising Him for His amazing grace. Four times He calls Samuel. Three times Samuel didn't even know what was going on. He thought it was Eli. Eli finally, you'd think he would have picked up on it sooner, but he picks on it the third time. And Eli says, when it happens again, say, here am I, Lord. Speak, your servant is listening. Even they didn't know. These are religious people. Samuel's a little guy. He didn't have all the clutter that those adults of us have. That's why you've got to love what Dawson's doing with these little guys in our church. I mean, it's just, it's beyond anything I ever dreamed. So, thank you, brother. There's also repetition. And I want you to really hear me. This is perhaps the most amazing thing about this narrative. The fourth time he calls Samuel, he does something very interesting. He repeats his name. Samuel. Samuel. Now, we don't know. We don't have punctuation in the Hebrew. We don't know. But whenever there's words repeated, there's emphasis on those words. And he repeats Samuel twice. There's only a few places in your Bible. It's so rare that I had to do a little bit of work. Yeah, not that much. Google's very helpful. Uh, I had to do a little bit of work to find all of the places where God speaks audibly or non-audibly, we don't know, but he speaks and he uses the person's name twice. Here they are. Abram. Abram. Abraham. Abraham. Stop what you're doing. Abraham's got the knife over Isaac and he's getting ready to cut his throat and sacrifice him on the altar. And God urgently calls out, Abraham, Abraham. Jacob, Jacob is getting ready to go back and meet his brother Esau, his life, the life of his family, all his kids and wives. They're all in danger. And God meets with him and he says, Jacob, Jacob. Moses comes to the burning tree. And he, he, you can imagine and God speaks to him, Moses, Moses, Martha, Martha, your, your heart is burdened with a great many things, but only one thing is needful. Simon, Peter, Simon, Simon, Satan has wanted to sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you, and when you are restored, encourage your brothers. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, I don't know what you hear, folks, but I hear a voice that is so filled with love 
and tenderness. Every one of these times there is urgency. Don't kill your son. Don't persecute my people. Don't concern yourself with all of this food and waiting on people when I'm right here. You're not going to have me always. Mary's chosen the good part. Come sit down and relax. No. I hear ten. I don't know what you hear, but I hope that after today, you will hear the tenderness of God in that voice calling these individual people by name. An urgency and a tender heart. That's God's amazing grace, folks. What about His terrifying judgment? Well, look at these verses I didn't read. This is 11 uh, to, the, to verse 17, 18, around there. So I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I just want you at some point, look at it, circle some of the words. Look at the language that God is using now in addressing the house of Eli, this great high priest that was awful and his boys were doing some absolutely wicked, wicked things to the point that God brings his hand of judgment down on them in one of the most, there's very few places, folks, in the Bible where you find this kind of of language that is so terrifying. Behold, he comes, this is what he told Samuel. The little boy Samuel did hear from God and the first thing God did was tell him these terrible words of judgment against the house of Eli. Behold, I'm doing something new in Israel. Everyone's ears who hear this will tingle. I am going to fulfill, this is God speaking, I'm going to fulfill every word I said about the house of Eli. This is before by the mouth of another prophet unnamed some years before. Eli never listened. His sons never listened. They were so wicked, it's hard to even describe what they were doing. For iniquity, he knew, this is God speaking to Samuel about Eli, he knew what his sons were doing. His sons were blaspheming God, and he did not restrain them. And I swear, now when God raises his hand and swears, you should be... Your knees should knock. I hate, when I read them, there's places, a few. This is one of the worst. I swear, iniquity will never, the iniquity that they have done will never be atoned for by sacrifice and offering forever. Never. No forgiveness. And Samuel is afraid. He's a young boy at this time. He's afraid to go tell Eli, of course. He wakes up the next morning. He doesn't want, He opens the door. He hopes that Eli won't come. But Eli comes and forces the little boy to tell him the prophecy. And he uses an oath. He says, may God do to me or do to you and, and more likewise if you do not tell me every word he said. One of the theologians that Dawson and I and Jeff and the other guys that are, are preaching through this with us, other churches, one of the commentaries that we're using, a great Old Testament theologian, he said this, even after hearing of the impending judgment of God, Eli 
does not repent. He tells Samuel, may God do so to you and more if you hide this from me. Eli tells him the prophecy. God is never going to forgive you. He's going to destroy you. There's no atonement for you. There's no sacrifice that can be made that can make up for what you've done. And listen to the words of Eli. Look at verse 18 or so, whatever it is. He tells Samuel, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. Now, doesn't that sound like humility and piety? That's the kind of of stinky religious speech we hear in churches all the time. We do not hear the truth. This man, what should he have done? He knew God better than a lot of us in this room. Eli, what should he have done, class? From class, what should he have done? What would you do if he came to you and said, you know, I'm going to bring hell down on you and your house. Beg for mercy. How did you all get in this room? What did you do to get in here? Say beg for mercy. I mean, come on, folks. This this is not a no-brainer. Instead of begging for mercy and asking God to do what God would have done, If he'd have just asked, instead, he remains hard-hearted. And we see that pattern throughout the rest of your Bible. We saw it before. We see it again. Saul, Saul's problem, first king of Israel, he refused to repent. He wouldn't do it. He blamed other people. Adam and Eve blamed other people. Adam blamed his wife. His wife blamed the serpent. The serpent didn't get a chance to speak, which is right. He shouldn't have been able to defend himself. But they're blaming everyone. What do we do with our sins? What do we do? What have the people of God always done? They always say, well, look, I'm not as bad as that person. Is Ugo here? Oh, there he is. I'm not as bad as Ugo. I'm better than him. And you all know that I'm better than him. So I should, get a, I should get extra credit for being better than Ugo. See, even Ugo agreed. You can't ask for better confirmation. <laughs> even after hearing of the impending judgment of God, he does not repent. His words have a pious ring of submission so to the sovereign will of God. But listen to this. It's actually an expression of fatalism couched in religious terms. Refusal to repent. If ever something happens in your life and you think, oh my God, and this would, God is not, if you belong to Jesus Christ, judgment like this that happened to Eli does not ever even come close. No matter what you do, and I'm going to show you why in just a second, No matter what you do, if you belong to Jesus, those words are never spoken to you because they were spoken to somebody else. Someone else heard those words. (laughs) 
and his answer. Your king, your redeemer, his answer was the only other place you hear the repetition of a name twice. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? True Christianity, listen to this, quote by J.C. Ryle. I love J.C. Ryle. True Christianity is a fight. Do we find in our heart a spiritual struggle? Do we feel anything of the flesh lusting against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh so that we cannot do the things we would? Are we conscious of two principles within us contending for mastery? Do we feel anything at war in our inward man? Well, let us thank God for it. It is a good sign. It is strongly probable evidence of the great work of sanctification. All true saints are soldiers. Anything, anything is better than apathy, stagnation, deadness, and indifference. We are in a better state than many. The most part of so-called Christians have no feeling at all. I say again, let us take comfort. The children of God have two great marks. They may be known by their inward warfare as well as their outward peace. You see, if you're struggling, if you hate the fact that you're looking at a world that's broken and that you feel broken too, and you don't know what to do, and sometimes you're facing sin that you should not have committed, and you've broken every law, and you've treated God with contempt, Ryle is saying that's good. That's the divine initiative. That's self-revelation. Unless He's doing that to you, you're not a son or a daughter. He chastises His children. In other words, He brings not condemnation, not guilt, but He brings an awareness of our brokenness. We should run. What do you do when that happens? What? Aneta? What? Run to Him. You don't go, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? Like Eva, oh, well, I guess I'll just let God be God and you know all that. And, and do. Don't do that. We will revoke your membership. <laughs> Dawson has a whole section in there about revoking your membership if you use bumper th- sticker theology at Christ the King. It's in the BCO, isn't it? It's in our book of church order. That's right. And if it's not, we're going to add it. Long ago, and in many ways, God spoke in past times. Listen. Now, in the final days, He has spoken to us through His Son. The Son radiates the glory of God, expresses the very character of God. He sustains everything by the mighty command of His Word. And when He had cleansed us from our sins, 
He sat down in the place of honor at God's right hand, and he ever lives to make intercession for us. And what this is telling us, and this is telling us what God has told the people of God always, turn to me. Rend your hearts and not your clothes and come to me. All you that labor and are heavy laden, that's in the words of our great king, come to me, I will give you rest. Will you trust him? I pray you will. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your mercy that endures forever. I I don't know. I wouldn't be here if you hadn't come and gotten me out of the gutter. And I know that most of us understand that that you have done something extraordinary we never would have done for ourselves. And so we pray, please, Holy God, through your Son and through your blessed Holy Spirit, help us, save us, and have mercy upon us according to your grace. Amen.